Welcome to this week's episode of Philly Prime. I'm Dave Schratweiser. Joining me again to talk about the 25th anniversary of the takedown of Philly mob boss John Stanfa is my good friend George Anastasia, the professor, as I like to call him, uh, Barry Gross, former uh, U.S. attorney and prosecutor on the Stanfa case, and Jim Marr, who worked for the FBI for 31 years and ran Squad One, which is the organized crime squad there, and built the case against John Stanfa during the course of Stanford's reign, if you want to call it, for three or four years or so. Um, there were some infamous shootings and murders and stuff uh, on, on the street that uh, led to, obviously, the takedown of John Stanford. But one of those was on the Schuylkill Expressway where they attempted to shoot and kill John Stanford. And, George, everybody remembers that day, and I know you do. You were right there on the scene yeah. moments after that happened. Uh, walk us through what happened out there, and then, and then the guys can join in, and we'll talk a little bit about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, Stanford's living in, in Medford at the time and is driven into Philadelphia every day. He goes to the, the, the uh, Continental Food Distribution Center he had down on Warfield Street. And he's coming in, and Freddie Aldrich is the driver. They're driving that old uh, Cadillac that I think belonged to Ronnie Previty. And they're coming on a Schuylkill, and, and a van pulls up beside them, Two portholes have been cut out the side of the van, and they start opening fire and strafe the side of the car. Now, Aldrich has got presence of mind. I think he rams the van, and it goes off Vera Avenue. He goes down on the Schuylkill and gets off and, and circles around and pulls up in front of the Continental Foods. He's got a tire blown out, and in the back seat is Joey Stanford, Stanford's son, who's been shot in the face. And they rush him to, uh, I think, University of Pennsylvania Hospital. I'm having breakfast that morning with a Philadelphia police detective, and he gets the call. And then I'm out there, and it was a circus out there in front of Continental that, that whole day. Everybody's sitting out there. Stanford's holed up in there, worried about his son. And it, it was one of the more audacious mob hits and in, in, attempted hits in Philadelphia history. And it came on the wake of the shooting of, of Joey Molino and Mikey Chang. So it was a continuation of this mob war that was going on. Yeah. Uh, Barry, w when you're sitting over at the U.S. Attorney's Office and word filters to you guys that uh, this has taken place, kind of what, what's going through everybody's mind over there, Bob Courtney, yourself, and the other guys that are in the office, what, what are you guys thinking at that point? I mean, it, it just reiterated how dangerous this whole situation was. I mean, there is a public a shootout in the middle of rush hour on the Schuylkill Expressway. I mean, it was just just so fortunate that innocent people weren't killed. I mean, it just showed how audacious, how reckless, how lawless this was, and how they just didn't care. You know, the Merlino side, the, the Stampa side, they didn't care. They just didn't care. And, you know, when, when, when people try to glorify that there's some honor, this or that, with these guys, I mean, this showed it. They didn't care about anybody. Wasn't there a bullet recovered in a, in a woman's uh, bathroom, uh, an apartment right nearby? Yeah, I think they're one yes. of the bullets. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. yep. Yes. Jim, um, uh, I'm not sure of the timing on this. Uh, whether you were running Squad One at the time, you were in the um, surveillance squad. But uh, when you heard about this, kind of what was going through your mind uh, as somebody who's investigated organized crime for a long time? That was a really bold and brazen attempted murder there on the Schuylkill. Well, I, th I think I was on the surveillance squad. I'm not sure, but I, I, and I have a vague recollection of being out uh, by John Stanford's house. Um, but I, I, other than that, I, I don't remember. I knew that we, uh, at the time, uh, uh, George, maybe you can yeah. hear better on the base, but uh, we had Ronnie Previty weren't wired by that time, didn't we? 
I don't know if he was wired up. I know he was cooperating at that point, but I don't think he had. I don't think he had wired up yet. I don't think he wired up till after. Yeah, that after Medford house break. is in the middle of a field yeah. out in but Medford. It it's across the street from my church, by the way. Too. Yeah. Uh, Merlino walks into a restaurant, a very, very, very popular restaurant in South Philadelphia, and opens fire at uh, at uh, Scarfer's son. I mean, yeah. they didn't care who they who they hurt. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. didn't yeah. even think about them. Well, let, let's let's talk about another uh, one that's uh, the only, I believe, at the time. Uh, attempted hit, uh, caught on video and audio. Right. You guys had bugged the Warfield Diner, which was John Stanford's restaurant right up the block from the his little food produce right. operation there on uh, Warfield Street. Um, you had a camera in the window across the street, I, I think at the time, and it is to this day, an abandoned home. The You guys had the camera up on the second floor, kind of peering down on the Warfield Diner, and the microphone's inside listening to what was going on. And uh, George, walk me yeah. through for the folks who don't know about that hit. What appears on camera there? And I remember Paul Hayes talking about this yeah. at, the tr- at the trial, how this all went down. But walk us yeah, through what I happened mean, next. It, it's pre-dawn, and you see uh, Joey Chang arrives and, and uh, the waitress, and they, they open the place up. You know, they pull the grate up, and the lights go on inside. Susan the Lucha Bell. Right, the, the Warfield Luncheon and Breakfast breakfast and Luncheon Express. And then a little while later, you see a car drive by. And then you see four shadowy figures run in, and the waitress screams. And then you hear gunfire, and then shadowy figures run out again. I mean, it's, it, it's a mob hit recorded in real time. And it, it was, as we've been talking about, I mean, the level of violence here, the wanton use of violence was unbelievable. Now, the amazing thing was that that, that Changalini survived that hit, you know, and and to this day, he's, you know, he's paying a price for it. But I remember the, the EMT who testified at the trial, uh, it was a, a young woman, said that uh, when she arrived on the scene first, they thought he was dead. Then they realized he was alive and he was bleeding. And she had put a, 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 a towel up to his nose and he, he wanted to blow his nose. And she was worried that he would literally blow his brains out, that she didn't want him to blow his nose because he had been so severely shot. Yeah. I mean, that, that was, again, you keep saying this, you can't make this up. I mean, the jury got to see this. The jury yeah. got to see a mob hit going down in real time. Yeah. Barry, you, your thoughts when, when you, you, you played that in court, yeah, uh, incredible. Uh, you, do, you never was- have a hit on, on videotape and audio tape, and as George said, in real time, never. Never, and it was incredible. We, uh, Paul Hayes was the affiant on that, um, and I was the attorney who was processing, and we brought it into a judge who's still on the bench, and she had just come over. She had been a state court judge, just had come over. She had a temporary office in the courthouse, and we presented this affidavit and everything, uh, and she approved it. There was, a, there was a ton of probable cause in there. Uh, and then, like two days or three days yeah. later, you know, I had to go back in there. Paul Hayes and I. It happened very early in the morning, right. and we ran over to the courthouse uh, for one. We had to close the wiretap down because there's something called when your objective has been met, and obviously the objective had been met. We had gotten evidence, and then we had to explain to the judge what had happened. You know, uh, and we we played the tape and the video. Uh, it was it was just incredible, and it was horrible because you could hear the waitress right uh, screaming. You you could actually hear what was happening, and 
you could hear the gunshots and and Joe Tinglini, I think, is is disabled very severely to this day. Um, and the theory that was it was brother on brother from Michael Tinglini who was then murdered. It was it was just it just showed you to me how horrible the Lacosa Nostra was and how horrible the whole concept and the whole culture behind Lacosa Nostra was and how Stample was, and that you had actually brothers pitted against brothers and trying to kill each other. And, and Stample was at the top, getting the money, intimidating everybody, shaking down restaurants, shaking down legitimate businesses. That's what was going on. And, and that's how horrible it was. Yeah. Jim, your thoughts on, on that uh, real-time attempted mob hit, audio and video? Well, it, it, again, it's the first time in history that it's happened. It's the only time that I'm aware of. But it, it reminds me, uh, as Barry said, the, the, the video was very, very poor because uh, uh, it was pre-dawn right. hours. Uh, Paul Hayes was already in the plant uh, doing the monitoring, and I believe was the first uh, person on the scene. Uh, but eventually we, we got the tapes, or the video, and I sent it down to Washington to see if they could do anything about enhancing it. And I got a call back from the agent who had worked on it, and he said I really didn't, wasn't able to do much with it. Mm -hmm. He said, but I will, I'll tell you this. He says, we're getting some new equipment in. Uh, and he says, once we get that in, he says, I'll be able to tell you much quicker that we're not able to do anything with it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and interesting aside there, George and I, it's no secret, have uh, interviewed uh, Tommy Scafidi, right. who, who was a cooperator, uh, horse, yeah. horse head, as you described him before, Barry, and was a cooperator in, in later cases. And uh, he was along for the ride that day and uh, has told us the story that when he gets called over to wherever they met before they went to do the hit, uh, and he's told, according to him, uh, that Michael Chang is telling them how they want to do it, what they want to do, et cetera. And uh, Mr. Scafidi is very uneasy with the fact that Susan Luchabello, a woman, might be inside that Warfield Diner when they open up. Thereafter, Stanfa is not there, but she is, and Joe Changlini Chang yep. is there. And he was apprehensive about going and has told us that he didn't want to go. And he told him he didn't want to go. And according to him, he had he no choice. Yeah. He had no choice. Yeah. And Michael Changlini said, you're going or you're next yeah. kind of thing. And he was opposed to it fundamentally because there was a woman present and he didn't believe organized crime. La Cosa Nostra should be going into carry out hits with women on the premises that could be in the line of fire. And fortunately she did not get hurt in that case. And, uh, He's talked about that a few times with us. But, you know, this is, if you remember, Michael was uh, walking home from a basketball game a few, I think, weeks before this and basically ran into his house and a hitman drove by and, and fired into his house. So now Michael retaliates by literally going against his own brother and and cripples him. And then shortly after that, Michael himself is killed. So it was. It was in the city of brotherly love, it was brother against brother. And to go back to one other thing Barry mentioned about Cosa Nostra, I mean, and this is something I, I can't emphasize enough. Cosa Nostra, the mafia, this whole idea of honor and loyalty and family is, is nonsense. I mean, they've taken values that are intrinsic to the Italian-American experience, and they bastardized them to their own end to justify what they do and who they do it to. It's just nonsense. Yeah. Um, and, and go ahead, go ahead, Jim. 
if I remember correctly, uh, Joe Cinglini was was being groomed for underboss. Or, yeah. Or, or I, at I, the time. I think Stanford thought he could bridge the gap because yeah. he had that, you know, he didn't have that South Philadelphia connection. He thought Joey could bridge the gap for him, and yeah. it turned out not to work out at all. Yeah, and I mean, we talk about the seriousness of all those things, and uh, uh, the next topic I want to yeah. talk to is a little bit the, the kind of plots to kill Joey Merlino by the Stanford crew, which, while serious on the one side, were almost comical on the other. Uh, the, the gang that couldn't shoot straight, bomb straight, uh, load a shotgun straight uh, stories um, that kind of are endless. And one of them is Joey going home to his apartment in Old City, uh, right down the block from Fox 29 where I worked, and my cameraman and George has visited many times, and so have you guys. Um, and Joey comes home from, I guess, a night out on the town, and uh, there's a bomb either under the car or there's one in the trash can, I believe, uh, well, they, nearby. They, at one yeah. point, they put it in a box. It was under his car, and he yeah. drove away, and it, and, and it was dragging along, and then it came out from underneath it. Yeah. Another time, they supposedly were going to have a, a sniper up on, over, over I-95. And then at one point, they were talking about Brenda getting dressed in a fancy dress and going out a clubbing and slipping some poison into one of Joey's drinks. I mean, it was. It, it was so bizarre, so crazy. Yet they were out there trying to do all of that. Yeah. yeah. And then the, the shotgun thing was the, the lavaranda hit where they walked in with the wrong size shells and a shotgun. It just. They're clicking away and nothing's yeah. happening. Yeah. Jim, when this is rate. going on, what, what are you guys thinking over at FBI headquarters? First off, these guys are bold and brazen, and I don't mean to make I don't mean to make too light of it because yeah. they were actually attempting to kill someone. But the comical way in which they worked out was kind of an amazing thing here. You know, the, these these bombs these bombs went off. There's nothing to say. They're, yeah, they're, right. They're only going to get the guy they want. Yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a distinct possibility that there's going to be a lot of collateral damage, right. and uh, it's uh, it's amazing to me how how they they were not able to focus better. Uh, but that's what they were. They were novices, if you will, dangerous, deadly. And, you know, this is all added to the mystique of Joey Marino. The right. fact that he survived all of that, the fact that he's walked away from a lot of serious charges, it's, it's created this whole mystique about him yeah. that, that continues to this day. The guy with nine lives, I think the latest line I've heard is the guy with 19 lives. Yeah. Barry, um, you guys had to put some of this stuff before the, before the jury, these attempts to kill Joey Merlino. Um, your thoughts while you're doing that and, and about that kind of evidence? Evans, but I want to just follow up with yep. what George Jim said. I mean, I mean, just think about, I think it was December 30th again um, in, in the La Veranda shooting. Just think yeah. about the people. It was, it was completely packed. The people with their families. Let's say you have your 10-year-old daughter see, sitting mm -hmm. there and see somebody come in with a shotgun to somebody's head and pull the trigger. I mean, that's what was going on. There are people who we don't even know who may still be traumatized yeah. by that event. That's what was just just so crazy. And as Jim said, the collateral damage of, you know, trying to blow up a, uh, a car in the middle of the street. I think one time, you're right, the, the car started driving off and the bomb was in the middle of the street. I mean, innocent people walking there. And, and putting that evidence in, you know, it, I think what happened is, you know, the, the jury just saw how dangerous, how reckless, how uncivilized, mm -hmm. in a sense, John Stample was, that he didn't care, just like he didn't care 
that coming into a jumpsuit in a courtroom because he didn't want to give the respect to the judge to put on a, a, a different pair of, of clothes, just like when he tried to intimidate the reporters, which he did, just like he tried to intimidate everybody else. And I can't say enough about how it just offended all of us that he, because a business person might have been Italian heritage, he thought that person had to pay tribute to him. And if they didn't, he would destroy their business or he would threaten to kill them, tried to kill them. There was a nightclub down on Delaware Avenue called the Aztec mm. Club. And he tried, he had Biagio Adornetto, whose crime the John Staffa was, he, he brought him, he came from Sicily, uneducated. He, he thought he was going to be a hitman, but he didn't have the guts to, to shoot. You know, he couldn't do it. And that was like the death mark against Biagio Adornetto because he couldn't shoot. And Rosario Conti Bellocci could kill and killed for Stanfa. And, you know, that was okay. And Stanfa even agreed to the engagement right. of his daughter with him. Yeah. And that just shows you how absolutely unworldly this whole thing was and how, you know, the values were turned upside down and how dangerous. And I really feel that if Stanfa hadn't been stopped, he would have threatened everybody, legitimate businesses. He would have infiltrated things. He would have tried to turn Philadelphia into the same like, graveyard that was happening in Sicily. Yeah. Jim, while this is all going on, um, there's an, the other faction is Michael Changlini and, and Joey Merlino. And you're filling up boxes with John Stanford's name on it with evidence, uh, cooperators, tapes, all that kind of thing. I'm assuming simultaneously you're filling up boxes with Joey Merlino and Michael Changlini's name we're on it as to, well. You were trying we're to. Trying, we're and, trying to do it. Yeah. Uh, the uh, microphones and, I mean, wherever we could put them, uh, we were going to put them. And uh, as Barry said, it's the best evidence because you can't you can't cross-examine a tape. Yeah, yeah. But there was a lot going out on out on the street, which I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I, I ask myself, how come I don't remember this stuff? And uh, yeah. it's because I was somewhere else. Yeah. But, I mean, interestingly here, you're working, you know, 24 hours a day, as Barry was saying, didn't take a year a day off for during the week for two-something years, that kind of thing. You're building, building, building on John Stanford. And at the same time, you have this other crew who's also actively involved in violence on the street, allegedly. Um, and I'm sure you're working on that and you're working on this and, and keeping track and working with the prosecutors, trying to put a case together, that kind of thing. That's a lot going on at one time on the streets of Philadelphia to, to, for the FBI to be covering it, for the U.S. Attorney's Office to be trying to prosecute. Well, we had a lot of good agents out there doing it. Uh, you know, I had a, I had a whole uh, uh, technical squad at my disposal. I had 18 agents on the surveillance squad that were always at my disposal. Uh, the uh, organized crime stuff kind of took priority, uh, and they always had something to do, and they knew where to go and who they were watching, and uh, so it made my job easier. Barry, your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, it was, um, yeah, we, we were concentrating on staff. I think there was a, there was a whole other team uh, of um, prosecutors and sort of a whole 
in a sense, other team of agents and officers because some of the agents, a number of the agents were in the middle of the trial and getting things ready for trial. So it, it was very difficult. I, I really think that what happened is, in an odd way, our success with that incredible wiretap that Jim Moore put together yeah. and incredible recordings hurt us in the later prosecutions two ways. One, mm. everybody was a lot more careful. You know, <laughs> right. They didn't speak anywhere. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I mean, my God, if the FBI can put eight microphones or uh, microphones in eight different rooms in a lawyer's office, you know, they can put it anywhere. Not to mention caught on tape, video, and audio on an attempted hit. Yeah. So exactly, you know, cameras and are everywhere. Two, yeah. You know, number two on that was, I think it raised the bar on reasonable doubt because I think from then on, because a lot of the jurors yeah. had seen that, saying, "Well, where's the tape of this?" Yeah, exactly. Well, of course, I mean, you're the FBI. Where's the tape? You know, and, you know, I think the tragedy in one sense with um, that pole camera or whatever the camera was outside, you know, the war field, I mean, if that had happened today, you know, it would be an HD and you could have seen yeah, everything. Right. It would have yeah. been a ring doorbell video yeah, probably yeah, at the yeah. war field. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. You know, George, uh, I asked the guys about that. Uh, your thoughts about that? Because there was so much going on at the time. On the street, you and I were bumping into yeah. each other every day. Yeah, I mean, there much, was you know? there was a, a lot to write about, a lot of activity. And the other thing that that's getting lost in all of this is, at this point, Ronnie Previty is with Stanford, but I think he's he's cooperating. He's not wired up yet. And you know, I talked to Previty a lot. I wrote a book about him. I mean, Previty said basically he saved some of the million of people's lives by tipping off the FBI that this was going to go down, and then it didn't go down. So, and and after that, Previty wires up. The other fascinating thing to me was. The indictment comes down. Stanford and 25 guys are indicted. Everybody's looking, and, and it's clearly, you know, this is a big case. Ronnie Previty's not indicted. And the Merlino guys all know Previty is a major player for Stanford. Yet, he's able to insinuate himself into the merlino Natali circle, and at that point, he's wired up. So, as I said, this this just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling. It goes from Scarfo to Stanford and then to the the Merlino trial, and it's all part and parcel of the you know the same approach. And it's it's uh, again, it, it it probably was for the mob the the beginning of the end for, in Philadelphia. But in terms of law enforcement and in terms of the media, it was a, a really high point in terms of the cases that were made and the stories that were written about it. All right, Barry and Jim, I can't let you get away um, w without. Asking your impressions, George mentioned it before. This kind of built the um, aura of Joey Merlino, the fact that they weren't able to kill him. So many attempts were made on him. Uh, I've heard guys say he's the, the cat with 19 lives, not nine lives. But um, without causing a problem, Jim, you tracked Mr. Merlino. You watched Mr. Merlino. You watched Stanfa and Merlino go at it. Your impressions of Joey Merlino, he is still— this day, on the street, uh, allegedly running the mob here in Philadelphia. I'm not asking you to comment on that. I'm asking you your impressions personally of him as the head of Squad One. My my most uh, lasting impression of Joe Merlino was at a time when his uh, father was mm -hmm. on trial in City Hall. It was a capital murder case. Right. And his lawyer, his father's lawyer, was expecting a, a payment part of his fee uh, that particular mm -hmm. day. And Joey was supposed to bring him $10,000. And instead, 
He went down and pushed it across the tables and showed up without the money. When his father is on trial for his life, that, the upside of it was the lawyer refused to go into court. Uh, the other lawyers said, you know, we, he doesn't object. We'll represent him temporarily. And eventually they showed up with the money and the lawyer went back. That, that's the kind of person he was. He cared more about having fun than he did about his father's life. Barry, yeah. your impressions of him, again, I'm not asking you to say something you're uncomfortable with, but just from no, your mean, impressions, sure, trying to prosecute mean, the guy for years. I mean, the stories, um, which similar with Jim, uh, you know, when the Delaware waterfront was really alive and there was all these nightclubs, it was all these stories, Joey Merlino and his so-called crew going in and drinking, and eating, and then beating the tab always running out of the restaurant. And I always would think, yeah, that poor bartender or that waiter, that probably comes out of his wages that, you know, that this guy, and they never thought about that. And, you know, and I really just thought he was glorified because everybody thought he was this suave, well-dressed, good-looking guy. And then I'll never forget that after the verdict in the case, they were all running around acting like they had they had won or something, and I think he did fourteen yeah, years. Yeah, right, yeah, Rico yeah. If that's winning. Yeah, yeah, fourteen years of his life. You know, so if people think this is some type of glamorous lifestyle, he was in jail for fourteen years just on that one case, and he's gone back to jail in other cases. Which. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. Joey Molino has emerged as the face of the Philadelphia mob in. in the end of the last century into this century. And and, and the only, you know, I, I, you hear all these stories about his personality and how he operates. The best line I ever heard came from Ronnie Previty when he said, Joe's agenda on Monday is to get to Tuesday. Get the money, spend the money, and then don't worry about it because tomorrow we're going to figure out another way to get the money. That's the way he lived day to day. And, and you know, there's a certain, there, there's a kind of a roguish charm in all of that from a certain perspective. But at the end of the day, a lot of people are paying a, Pretty big price for the lifestyle that he lived. All right. And Barry and Jim, just um, as laymen now, that road's going to come to an end sometime, the way the government works and uh, all the technology and things they have now. Any doubt in your mind, either one of you or both of you, if you would like, that that road will eventually come to an end? I certainly hope. I hope somebody's looking out because the, the leopard doesn't change his spots. Well. Whether it does, I mean, I, I really think their influence is not what it was. Um, I mean, thankfully, we're not seeing bodies, you know, along um, roadways in black trash, trash bags. Um, at least we're not hearing of legitimate businesses being um, extorted and people being killed. And I think it's really... Ultimately, because we all know prosecutors come and go. I'm no longer a prosecutor. Yep. Mm -hmm. I really think it was because of, of the FBI agents like Jim and Paul Hayes and that entire crew, Gary Langan, so many others, and the police officers who were out there and the troopers. I mean, they're the ones watching every day. Um, you know, prosecutors come and go, but you know, the law enforcement officers are the ones out there risking their lives every day trying to stop this. Listen, I want to thank everybody, George, for coming on the show. Jim, I really want to thank you. I know you don't do this often, and uh, 
we've talked about it, you and I, a little bit about doing it, and, and you came through and did it. And Barry, uh, we always look forward to talking to you because we get the straight from you guys. And uh, that's a valuable thing when you're trying to get to the bottom of things. You want to report it fairly and you want to report on the facts. And I appreciate everybody for coming on the show. Three great shows. Uh, maybe more down the road. You never know. And I, I want to thank you for all making the visit here to Philly Prime. And folks out there uh, at home, uh, this has been uh, enlightening, fun, and at the same time, very serious, but recounting years that George and I right. shared together uh, as reporters. And, and to me, uh, real value. And, and George, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I mean, it was an error. It was a, an error in Philadelphia history that will never be repeated. And I think it's good to underscore how it went down, why it went down, and who was behind making it all happen. All right, guys, thanks again. That's Philly Prime for this week. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time.